welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. You know, it was really fun last week. Uh, you know, really enjoyed getting to record an episode in person for once. But now, of course, we're back to our uh, normal ways. It's it's very sad. I miss you, Joe. Likewise. And here we are recording a podcast on opposite sides of the world. But OK, moving on. Today, I think we're going to be talking about something that we've covered in a few episodes and that I think is one of your favorite themes. Okay, because you said that, I know exactly what it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have to play the guessing game like we sometimes do? No, um, it's liquidity, right? Right. Why is this one of your favorite topics? It's funny, we've talked about it a lot, like the sort of, it's particularly the bond market, bond market liquidity, market structure. We've talked about it a lot. But I guess I've never asked, like, why is this a subject of such fascination for you? Okay, I can tell you exactly why. Because liquidity is almost the essence of markets. Like, if you think that a really Hmm. simple definition of liquidity is the ease of buying or selling something, maybe without affecting its price too much, that's exactly what markets are, right? And the other thing is, You get all these really interesting um, motivational dynamics at play and lots of design issues. And even though you can think of the perfect market structure to suit a particular asset class or transaction, there might be different players involved who don't want to see that market structure come to fruition. So it's, it's a fantastic mix of human behavior and markets, I think. So basically, this idea of liquidity, the ease with which one can buy or sell an asset at a given price, if we can understand why it exists or why it doesn't, then we can sort of understand the entire structure of the market, who the different players are, what their different motivations are, etc. That's exactly right. Are you telling me we have someone on the show today who knows the answer to this question? Well, we might. I don't know if we have the answer, but we're <laughs> going to try and get uh, closer to the answer But I think we're going to do it in a cool way because obviously normally, you know, we might talk to someone we have who's like an expert in how the bond market works or stock market structure. Today, we're going to talk about how this concept of liquidity and market structure exists in our everyday lives. So not just in what we call financial markets, but in the sort of how we how we see this concept uh, everywhere and the things we buy, transact in, et cetera. That sounds absolutely amazing. And I hope we can come up with some real life parallels for, uh, for instance, lack of liquidity in the corporate bond market. That would be fun. That's what I'm hoping for. And I'm hoping <laughs> that by understanding how liquidity exists in everyday life or lack of it, that we can then translate that back into maybe some new insight into the financial world. So without uh, further ado, I want to bring in our guest. His name is Karthik Shashudar. He is the author of Between the Buyer and the Seller, a book that examines uh, some of these topics. Karthik, thank you very much for joining the Odd Lots podcast. Hi, Joe. Hi, Tracy. I'm glad to be here. So, Karthik, what did you think about our introduction? Did you think that uh, Tracy's explanation for why liquidity is such an important aspect of the market to understand sort of parallels with why this interests you? Absolutely. I think she's uh, kind of bang on. And I think the definition of liquidity she used is also like precisely the one that I use in my book. But yes, liquidity, I think, is an important topic because it's around us everywhere. It's around us in pretty much every market that we were happen to transact in on a daily basis. And like, as Stacey just explained, it's a wonderful combination of markets and human behaviors. 
So we always used to write that liquidity is kind of a nebulous concept and people have different definitions of good and bad liquidity. Uh, so why don't we just jump right into it to clarify the concept? Give us a real life example where liquidity is an issue or that tells us about one specific aspect of liquidity. So uh, I'll start with liquidity itself. I'll start with the quote that I have that I begin my book with. It's by uh, Michael Lewis and it's from Flash Boys. And he says liquidity was one of those words Wall Street people threw around when they wanted the conversation to end and for brains to go dead and for all questioning to cease. This book is basically an attempt to kind of like uh, take liquidity beyond its kind of uh, uh, Wall Street origins. I myself have a little bit of a background in Wall Street. I uh, briefly worked for a couple of years at uh, Goldman Sachs and now I'm uh, working in the financial services industry, uh, working for a company called Arkera, where we are trying to revolutionize uh, how client engagement is done in investment banks. That aside, I think uh, to come coming back to liquidity, uh, to take a very simple example that I think a lot of us kind of deal with every day, uh, it's to do with the market for uh, uh, what I call as motorized local transportation. That's uh, cabs and cab-like uh, uh, instrument pretty much everywhere. So one of the biggest kind of, uh, it was actually one of the motivations for my book in terms of like one of the markets that has seen a massive revolution in liquidity is the, right. is the uh, cab market, where which had kind of existed in a fairly low level equilibrium for a lot of years. I mean, uh, different, uh, the regulation was different in different cities, uh, but pretty much each city was broken in uh, one way or the other, like uh, for example, in in a lot of cities in India where I come from, uh, it's common for taxi drivers to refuse you a ride once they know where you want to go. Or for example, if uh, taking the example of New York City, uh, in the mornings if you're trying to uh, take a taxi from midtown to downtown, it's uh, highly unlikely that you're going to find one. This is a market which was kind of very, very inefficient. Uh, it was... Uh, it, People had tried to regulate it in a in a whole lot of ways, but like none of it had really uh, worked out. And then comes along this company called Uber, which uh, using an app and using this uh, concept of dynamic pricing, which is highly controversial. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I I absolutely love it. By the way, they have kind of uh, changed the way, uh, changed the uh, taken the liquidity in the cab market to a whole new level. So there's several ways. I, I think obviously it's great that we're starting with the Uber discussion because it's probably one of the most clear ways in modern life in which something we just took for granted, uh, you know, putting out your hand and getting a taxi is really a sort of quasi financial market and the uh, new market has changed. So there's dynamic pricing. There's the fact that, you know, the Ubers have to take you everywhere. You can sort of see the supply uh, that's on the road more vividly because, you know, you're not just sort of wondering when a cab is going to come around. You can set up timing uh, very well. In your view, A, what is the most sort of radical thing about Uber? Perhaps it's the dynamic pricing. And then, you know, since we're looking for financial market lessons, what is sort of is there an Uber equivalent in the world of finance that we could say, okay, this thing that Uber does is similar to this on an exchange? Mm, good question. So the first part you got bang on. I think the most important part of Uber is uh, uh, dynamic pricing in financial markets. I can't think of a 
direct parallel right now i can't think of a direct mm. parallel where like uh, where let's say an intermediary uber is also an intermediary between the uh, cab driver and the passenger where an intermediary uses kind of uh, dynamic pricing to kind of uh, uh, make the markets more efficient for uh, everyone i think uh, uber uh, one of the quirk of the taxi market is that like it's extremely fragmented when it comes to both space and time like right. the market that you see is limited by uh, the taxis that are you as a passenger you see the taxis around you at that point in time so this massive frag- fragmentation on two dimensions and that kind of fragmentation i mean like you can say that like even our uh, regular stock or bond markets have that kind of uh, fragmentation because there are like uh, there are like you have like multiple venues and you have like uh, kind of Uh, there is fragmentation through the day because there there are some market makers who operate uh, more heavily at different times of the day and volume changes through the day and so on but the key difference between uber and a kind of a stock market is that like in a stock market by uh, providing supply supply in one place you're not taking supply away from another place so for example if if i am goldman sachs and i am participating right now in the new york stock exchange that doesn't come at the cost of my participation at this point of time in nasdaq if uh. i had to kind of choose between one or the other then like it would have been more like uh, uber so in that sense i mean like i got it's hard to uh, I, at this moment draw a direct parallel between between uber and financial markets uh, because uber is a far more complex problem i would say So Uber is a great example of a sort of technological change that has arguably boosted liquidity or the availability of a certain service but there are existing assets or services out there that have also resisted technological change um and I think you brought one of them up in your book and I'm particularly interested in this the real estate market the concept of all these real estate agents mm. who find you a house or an apartment there have been multiple attempts to make that market more liquid either with online platforms or some other uh new big ideas and they seem to have largely failed so why is it that liquidity hasn't come to the property market and we all still have to pay you know obscene commissions to new york real estate agents the thing with the real estate market um, uh, is that like the way in which the new players like take somebody like uh, redfin in the us or housing in india the way they are approaching the market is very different from how your local uh, real estate agent approaches the market so here i bring in an analogy in the book from the financial markets and uh, try to distinguish between what i call as brokers and clearing houses for this podcast audience i don't think i need to explain those two terms so uh, the difference between your traditional wait actually i do think a quick definition of the two terms would be okay. helpful cuz i get confused myself and i think i suspect we have a lot of listeners that would like a clarification okay so brokers basically take a mandate on behalf of a client and take responsibility for executing the trade on behalf of the client clearing houses on the other hand don't really take a they don't work for a particular client they just provide a platform where clients can come on and find each other and uh, transact so the way the traditional real estate industry has been set up with the brokers brokers are brokers uh, they take a mandate from uh, they i tell them i want a two bedroom apartment on the upper west side and i'm willing to pay up to 2000 dollars a month and they will take that mandate and to possibly try and uh, find me a house uh, if one exists uh, if there is supply for it and so on 
on the other hand if you take a, a something like uh, housing I'm, i'm taking an indian example because that's a, that's what i'm most familiar with but uh, uh, what they do is it's an online portal where i as a seller of a house or a landlord can list my house and you as a buyer or a tenant can come and search for listings so so redfin or housing doesn't take a mandate on behalf of the client so they just kind of enable transactions and what happens because of that in the real estate market because like no two houses are similar and there's a lot of uh, a lot of quirks and like people have weird preferences i think what's happened is that like uh, it's very hard for the clearing house to kind of uh, really offer the precise uh, like uh, 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 offer a really short list so if you want uh, if you have a particular set of preferences and uh, uh, you might uh, put in those filters on the website and you will get a really long list and the effort required in going through that and eliminating the stuff that you don't want is pretty uh, high so uh, on the other hand a broker is a, as a human being his uh, advantage over the platform is that like he can really represent you you can clearly communicate to him what your uh, what you're looking for and um, he can kind of find you precisely that kind of a, uh, a, a deal and so on so in that sense they have been able to uh, add value and also as i mentioned in the book especially in india uh, uh, brokers have kind of leveraged these online platforms because they i mean it, it always happens in the stock market where your local broker goes and participates on your behalf on the new york stock exchange so similarly uh, in the property market you have brokers taking their clients mandate and going to one of these uh, uh, websites to find a deal and so on it is interesting hearing this uh, explanation because you know Once again, going back to sort of traditional financial markets, one of the themes that we've talked about is, uh, you know, the degree to which the bond market is characterized by such a greater diversity of instruments than the stock market. And so hearing you explain, you know, each each apartment or house that someone would want to buy is probably going to be a little different, even if they're sort of can be grouped in general categories, the, you know, they're not... Any two apartments are not as uh, fungible the way you know. Sort of every other, every share of Microsoft is basically identical. Wait, so I mean, I I've heard that explanation for bond market um, issues, and it makes some sense. But the other thing to consider, and I'm pretty sure we've talked about it at various points on Odd Lots, is the motivation of the players involved. So a lot of people will say that the bond market is resistant to change because, for instance, the big dealer banks, the guys that buy and sell bonds on behalf of their clients, don't want to give up a really lucrative form of commission. Uh, so, Karthik, I'm just wondering, in terms of everyday examples of market structures or liquidity, is there one that springs to mind where the participants in it have been, you know, basically unmotivated to change their ways? I'll probably go back to the kind of the taxi example, because in a, uh, Uber, obviously, you know, it's been uh, uh, fairly controversial. In London, where I now live, Uber kind of has been effectively banned uh, in its uh, uh, fairly recently, and there's a huge controversy going on over there. And there, I think it's more to do with the fact that uh, fact that the traditional taxi industry has been like they have immense lobbying power, and they have been kind of uh, resistant to 
change in terms of like there have been uh, uh, there have been a few ways in which they have been inefficient like for example even in the most well regulated markets you have the problems of taxis not wanting to go into certain parts of town and and uh, so on so uh, so from the, so what's happened there is that like i mean one of the reasons you see the regulatory backlash against uber is because the uh, incumbents kind of uh, are kind of afraid of this threat and they want to kind of uh, because they are sitting on fairly uh, valuable assets they're not valuable assets in terms of like as intermediaries which is what it is with the banks in the bond market here it more it is in terms of like uh, they're, they're sitting in terms of valuable assets as the right to sell in this particular market think of the uh, new york taxi medallion for example so uh, so uh, so they have been stymieing all efforts to kind of reform the markets the because of their unwillingness to change but uh, but yeah but because uber has shown a way out in terms of like it's increasing efficiency i uh, it might not be a very uh, that might not be a fight that might last too long hopefully let's see now speaking of real estate um one of the you know with the rise of the internet one of the big theories that people had was that geography would be destroyed so we can all work from anywhere we could work from home we could work from wherever so there's no reason to live in New York or Silicon Valley or Washington DC or, or LA and yet the opposite seems to have happened and you wrote about you write about this in your book where in fact people you know cities and urban centers have become even more and more important for the economy despite what sort of this theory of disrupting geography would say what uh, what happened there why has that idea that the internet would sort of subvert traditional geography not really played out Okay, uh, so I think uh, what we kind of ignore is in terms of uh, to use uh, some Silicon Valley speak here uh, that cities are effectively platforms. Cities can be viewed as platforms that uh, connect employees on one side and uh, uh, businesses on the other, and like at a different level, they can connect uh, consumers of local goods and services to producers of local goods and services such as uh, restaurants and so on. But we we'll leave that aside right now. So what people had kind of vastly Yeah, underestimated was the importance of uh, proximity in terms of uh, uh, getting work done and so on. So what people had assumed is that with internet there is going to be like uh, um, there is it is going to be possible to kind of uh, uh, communicate seamlessly uh, across great distances and so you can sit in your farm in Wyoming and kind of uh, uh, work the same way as. somebody sitting in his office in san francisco can so uh, i think that was uh, something people assumed and that has not come to be because like there is always a transaction cost involved in talking to somebody who's not uh, next to you so you will ha- either have to call the guy and make sure he understands what you're saying and there can be various kind of uh, places where like coordination across distance can uh, kind of falter and because of that i think like people companies have recognized the um recognize the need to kind of be in one place and so on and so you have like the uh, ir- ir- despite how expensive san francisco has gotten nowadays like people still continue to move to the bay area and uh, so on because that's where the kind of the liquid market for the the skills that people have are this is making me feel bad about working from our um abu dhabi satellite office of my uh, living room Um Karthik I have a slightly more theoretical question for you to what extent do systems of buying and selling reflect 
the nature of the underlying assets. Like if you have a bunch of really diverse things that aren't actually that fungible and to what extent do they reflect the nature and the motivations of the parties involved and which one would you give more weight to? That's not a very uh, easy question to answer. I think it's it's highly interdependent. I think how a market has developed historically is a function of uh, the kind of assets that are being traded in that market. So, for example, I think one of the uh, uh, one of the if you have things that are like easily fungible, which is easy for a lot of people to provide, you would have seen that the market would have evolved such that like the overall uh, transaction cost, the, even the the, uh, the overall transaction cost is pretty low because uh, because competition drives the bid and ask close together. When you have lots of products which are fungible, which can be easily traded. On the other hand, uh, I think th- this is something I talk about in my in the first chapter in my book, which unfortunately your uh, the my US readers may not really appreciate. It's about the markets in uh, football players, football as an association, football where uh, you have because the players are not fungible at all no two players are especially at the highest level are very similar to each other you see deals that happen that are either extremely uh, expensive we had recently a case of a, uh, a footballer going uh, uh, for some 200 million euros between a club in spain and a club in france so it's like on the other hand you can have equally highly rated footballers moving between clubs without any transfer fee involved. So it's a highly uh, uh, kind of uh, when you have less fungible kind of assets, the you uh, the deals take place at either the bid or the ask. And so like you have a very, a bit of a crazy market. But and I think the, the uh, that actually drives the behavior of the that drives the behavior of the intermediaries. I mean, like if you're, let's say, an intermediary who, if you're making market in uh, markets in stocks, and you decide to behave as if like stocks are uh, uh, the stocks are a non fungible item and uh, try to charge high uh, bid ask spreads and things like that, you will be easily priced out of the market. So I think it's the uh, nature of the asset that's being traded that drives the nature of the market. Okay, I I want to ask about another what one might call a market in which no two of the assets are uh, fungible, but which has been massively disrupted by the internet, and that is the dating market or the marriage market or whatever you want to call it. Obviously, extraordinary change in behavior with the rise of Tinder where someone can just sit on their phone and arrange numerous dates in the span of a few seconds or minutes. Uh, as far as I know, I've never, you know, I've never used it. But yeah, uh, whatever, Joe. Nice try. <laughs> I've, I'm way too old. I'm way too. I, I'm way <laughs> too old. I missed all of it. Um, versus the old days, where I guess theoretically you had to go to a bar and it was a very slow, cumbersome process to meet people and theoretically arrange dates. Tell us about uh, this market. What are some of the lessons we can learn in uh, liquidity from uh, the way from the uh, the dating market? So the dating market is again quite uh, uh, quite interesting, especially the way it has kind of. Uh, I'll again take the Indian example because it's a bit more interesting and less liquid than I think in other places. What you have in India is because of historical or cultural quirks. There's a massive gender imbalance on 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 uh, apps such as mm. uh, Tinder. So I think it's uh, uh, 
somewhere around 80-20 or uh, in favor of men or uh, worse. So what happens is that neither, let's just assume heterosexual relationships here. So what happens is that neither men nor women have a good time in the market because uh, when you have like, let's say, five men for every woman or for 10 men for every woman in the market, if you are, um, I mean, Tinder to some extent is a little less bothersome compared to uh, other apps because you only kind of, uh, uh, there's only a uh, kind of, uh, only when there's a mutual like that, like you get a notification. But what happens is that if you are a woman and there, there are like lots of men in the market, but you are the women, what happens, you'll end up getting a lot of kind of uh, interest from a large number of men. And you know for sure right up front that like maybe 90% of them are not your type. So you have to, you have the job of kind of sifting through so many of these profiles and in order and to somehow find the needle mm. in the haystack. On the other hand, if you're a man in such a market and you, what you notice is that there are like so many men for every woman here that you need to somehow stand out. And standing out in this kind of a market where your competitors are also evolving and so on is not easy. So, so in that sense, it's a very, uh, uh, while theoretically it is, like, I mean, it solved the liquidity problem to some extent in that like, uh, now if I go to a party and I switch on Tinder, I know that who else is on, uh, uh, I can, let's say I spot somebody at a party and want to check her out and I can see if she's on say, Tinder, which where she probably will be if she's single and then like uh, maybe express interest there without facing the fear of rejection so in that sense it's kind of increased the volume of trading uh, or volume of interest in the market but on the other hand the, it is still not completely kind of uh, uh, solved the market because there is this uh, whole issue of uh, what they call as congestion. That's, that's fascinating, the idea that this sort of imbalance creates a broken market and it sort of explains why bars, you know, often – I don't know if they still do. You know, they'd have like a ladies' night. Ladies' men night, had yep. to pay a cover. <laughs> women got it free in order to, uh, you know, keep keep the populations balanced because with imbalance, uh, it doesn't work out very well for either side. You know, ladies' night – sorry, I just have to interject. Ladies' night is alive and well in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and that's because the gender balance is so extreme. There are so many more men than women here. Karthik, before we go, we just have time for uh, one more minute. Give us one quick other example from your book. What's just one more thing in uh, modern life that we see that's an interesting example of uh, liquidity providing an action? So one more way is – I think I'll, I'll, I'll answer this question at a – bit of a meta level so uh, you take the publishing industry itself right so if you were to think of in the olden days before amazon what happened was if i were to wanted to publish something in a book form and have it read by you the transaction cost would have been immense in terms of because uh, first i had to kind of uh, uh, put it on to get it printed onto a paper nicely bound and then like it has to kind of uh, uh, go through the entire supply chain of books and then my publisher will have to kind of do the uh, marketing to make sure that you know that my book exists and so on so so there was a lot of cost transaction cost involved in terms of publishing and con consuming books itself i think what's happened is that with the uh, again this is a uh, this is a market that's only like become partly liquid and there's still a very long way to go as I've figured out after kind of having published the book is that like after uh, Amazon came about and kind of uh, released the concept of the Kindle 
where all the dead tree in the publication process is taken away. So uh, it's not funny what portion of the cost of my book goes into modifying and moving paper. And if you take that out, the kind of the uh, the amount of the value that the reader pays that can be captured by the writer is immense. And so effectively, the uh, once you have the uh, kind of the paper taken away, I think the what the biggest kind of transaction cost between the buyer and the seller is that the reader should know that the uh, book exists and so on, which is again, a fairly uh, big cost, but still I, I think this is a market which is on its way to becoming a bit more, uh, becoming more liquid. Karthik Shashidar, fascinating conversation. The author of the book in question, Between the Buyer and the Seller, which explores concepts of liquidity and market structure in everyday life. Fascinating conversation. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Steve. So, Tracy, do you think we are we are any closer to understanding the mystery <laughs> of market liquidity? I mean, I, th- I think we may be muddling the concept of liquidity with just service provision in that mm. conversation. But that said, the thing that's endlessly fascinating about liquidity is the fact that everyone has different definitions and views of it. So even when it comes to the corporate bond market, you have all these investors or traders uh, who will say anecdotally that liquidity has deteriorated in the market. I was speaking to one uh, credit guy today who told me it took him a week and a half to sell one million worth of bonds. And then you have the regulators who will come out and do these studies and say, well, based on these hard data points, we see no problem with liquidity whatsoever. And it's just really interesting to me how you can't really get to the bottom of what ostensibly should be a fundamental concept in markets and finance. Absolutely. But, you know, I think like all of those different examples, some were more like financial markets than others. I think they tell us something profound, which is that I think uh, if from a naive point of view, you could imagine that with the Internet – everything could suddenly just become a liquid market where there's no more need Mm. for brokers. There's no more need for anything. You just put your information out there. I'm a person working in here. I I have these skills or I'm looking for this kind of person to date or I'm looking for this kind of apartment or whatever it is. And even and uh, but it's still really hard. And so and different markets really do have fundamentally different structures, or at least they have players, as you were alluding to, in those markets that have can prove pretty effective at resisting change. And so in the same way, we just sort of imagine that in theory, electronic trading markets will disintermediate everything and you can just buy whatever you want by putting it out there. Uh, It's really not that simple. Yeah, so maybe the lesson is that even in a technological age, you can charge for liquidity as a service for certain assets, I guess. Right, and that even in a technological age, there people have ways of sort of preserving the existing order, and, and not everything is just not everything is just so simple as a you know a gigantic eBay market or whatever it is. Right, if something hasn't been disrupted before, there might be a reason for that. That's well put. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's do it. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. 
And you can find Karthik on Twitter at Karthik S. And you can find our producer, Sarah Patterson, on Twitter at Sarah Pat with two T's. 